Hello, you're listening to The Water Cooler, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre. My name is Nick Cater and I'm the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Today we hear from a man who could fairly be described as the most successful Australian politician of his generation. John Howard led the Liberal National Coalition to four successive election victories in 1996, 1998, 2001 and 2004 to become the second longest serving Prime Minister since Federation. Today we bring you a speech in which he looks back on that era with very special attention paid to the role of his coalition partner, the National Party. The speech was given late last year in Sydney at an event hosted by the Page Research Centre and the Menzies Research Centre. Well, thank you very much for those very kind words of introduction and I, of course, acknowledge the presence of your wonderful wife, Julia, and uh, many other people uh, who served uh, in uh, our coalition governments over that wonderful period of almost 12 years, I see David Brownhill and Michael Bohm uh, and many others. I, for a combination of reasons, I'm delighted to address a gathering which brings together uh, the Page Institute Research Centre and the Menzies Research Centre. They are, if you like, the intellectual powerhouses of the ongoing coalition. Having the names Page and Menzies together was not always de rigueur in Australian politics. In fact, if you understand the history uh, of uh, Earl Christian Grafton Page and Robert Gordon Menzies, there was a time when they didn't get on all that well. And indeed, as many of you will know, when Joseph Lyons died suddenly on the eve of Easter in 1938. And it became very apparent that um, the United Australia Party would have to elect a new leader and that Menzies was, uh, how shall I put it, a, a fairly vigorous applicant for the job. Earl Page, as would be the case Many years later, in 1967, when Harold Holt went for a fatal swim uh, and John McEwen was sworn in in his own right as Prime Minister, Earl Page was sworn in in his own right as Prime Minister. He didn't like Menzies, and he made what many parliamentary observers believe was one of the most vicious personal attacks. He accused Menzies of cowardice in not volunteering for service in World War I, he accused him of disloyalty uh, to uh, his former leader and uh, many other uh, political sins. But in the fullness of time, not only would Earl Page serve in a coalition government under Menzies briefly before the collapse of uh, his leadership in 1940 and the brief period of 40 days when Arthur Fadden was Prime Minister of Australia, he would return. And, of course, in 1949, when Menzies returned with Arthur Fadden as his Deputy Prime Minister, Earl Page became the Minister for Health and served as the member for Cowper uh, until he died uh, on the eve of the 1961 election, when, for a brief period of time, uh, that bastion of National Party loyalty or Country Party loyalty as then was 
uh, fell into the Labor Party's grip just for two years. And I also have what I might call something of a, uh, through my family, a, a link with Earl Page. My father, as some of you know, was born in Cowper in the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales and he attended McLean Superior School and he worked uh, as an apprentice uh, fitter and turner uh, at the Harwood Island Mill of CSR uh, and uh, until he volunteered for service in World War I and left uh, that part of Australia at the age of 19. And our family folklore has it that uh, my, matern my paternal grandmother who'd been born in Southport uh, in Queensland, was uh, treated for various illnesses by Earl Page and spent a period uh, in the hospital that he established. So the relationship started badly, but it ended well, and in a sense it's a metaphor for the hugely successful partnership between our two great parties. So much so that when Menzies retired in 1966, he gave a press conference at the old Parliament House and he listed as two of his greatest achievements what he had done for education, and he truly was, despite all the protestations about Gough Whitlam and the Labor Party, he truly was somebody who claimed the mantle of the Education Prime Minister because of what he did in the wake of the Murray Inquiry in the late 1950s to expand tertiary education opportunities and very importantly what he would do in 1963 to lance the boil, the sectarian boil of state aid for independent schools. But when he retired he said the two things he was most proud of were what he had done for education and the coalition he had uh, with the then country party, later briefly the National Country Party and, and then the National Party. And the partnership between Menzies and first of all Arthur Fadden and later the partnership between Menzies and John McEwen symbolised the very deep links between the two parties. And let it be said, it was at a time when some differences had begun to emerge between the two parties on the level of intervention in the economy, but perhaps not as much as later commentators suggested, because in the 1950s and 60s, both sides of politics and both of the coalition parties believed that government should intervene in the economy more than would later be the attitude of those two parties. This, of course, was the era when everybody believed in centralised wage fixing. When Bob Menzies retired, he gave a series of lectures at a university in America and he praised the wisdom of the judges of the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. He said they were wise men, they were all men then, and uh, such things as conditions of work, he said, and wages should never be the subject of debate in an election campaign. They're far too important to be caught up in some kind of electoral bargaining. Everybody believed in that. Everybody believed in high tariffs. 
They were meant to protect Australian jobs. Everybody believed in a fixed exchange rate, the idea that you would expose the Australian dollar to the vicissitudes of the international market was abhorrent. And, of course, their belief in those things was reinforced by the fact <coughs> that the 1950s and 60s was a period of extraordinary prosperity and stability for the Australian economy. It all seemed to work. And people who defended intervention in the economy would point to the strength of the Australian economy. And it was understandable, therefore, when governments intervened that they claimed to do so in the national interest and to protect the continuity of that economic stability that had been developed. And, of course, Australia in those days was incredibly fortunate because history had given us some protected markets. History it was yet to see the rise of strong economies in the Asian region. And in that context, one of the really trailblazing things that was done by the coalition government, inspired <clears throat> by McEwen, but very strongly supported by Menzies, was the Commerce Agreement signed in 1957 between Australia and Japan. Now, that was only 12 years after the end of World War II. And the coalition party room was not full, but it had plenty of men who had served in the war against Japan, and quite a number, such as Alexander Downer's father and Reg Swartz, who had been prisoners of war of the Japanese. But McEwen saw the wisdom of what he did. And it's interesting what tricks or, or what ironies, in a sense, history plays with dates. That commerce agreement was signed in 1957. And 1957 was the year of the Treaty of Rome. And the Treaty of Rome was the foundation document of the European Common Market, which would later become uh, the European Union and that organisation from which, God bless them, the British are now trying to escape, but that is another matter. Um, can I say that um, the signing of that commerce agreement meant that when Britain did join the common market in the early 1970s and abandoned the imperial preference system that had been erected in Ottawa in the 1930s, we laid the foundation of that agreement for our future trading relationship with Asia. Because as you all know, through the 1960s and 1970s, Japan was the iron lung of Australia's export markets. And it's only in recent years that she has been surpassed by China, but through the 60s and 70s. And when we discovered iron ore and, and, and the potential that opened up in exporting to Japan and other parts of Asia, we had the foundation of that commerce agreement. And it was an act of foresight. It was the real beginning of Australia's engagement with Asia. The beginning of Australia's engagement in Asia was not 1972, although I give Gough Whitlam credit for recognising the need to shift our diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to the mainland Chinese regime. The real foundation of our entry into Asia was that commerce agreement and 
credit for that is owed more than to any other person, to the then Trade Minister. He would a year later become the Deputy Prime Minister when Fadden retired. Uh, he was strongly supported by Menzies, but McEwen was the driving force behind that agreement. Of course, their partnership was very strong, and the partnership between the two parties continued. It fell apart in when we went into opposition after our defeat in 1972, we operated for a period as separate parties for just 18 months in Parliament, and it didn't work all that well. And when we came back together after the 1974 election, it was the election that saw a new member for Bennelong elected into the federal parliament, although I don't claim any credit for getting the two parties together. I was, I was uh, something of an office boy uh, at that stage. The two parties came back together and uh, under uh, Bill Sneddon and, uh, and Doug Anthony. And then when Malcolm Fraser became the leader in 1975, his instincts were even more pro the coalition than had been Sneddon's, although Sneddon's instincts were fundamentally very pro-coalition. And I observed when I became a member of that government the close partnership between those two men and the remarkable contribution of Doug Anthony and Ian Sinclair and Peter Nixon and, and also Ralph Hunt and others to the strength of that coalition agreement. It wasn't always easy, there were differences, and as many of you know, the relations between the two parties varied around Australia. The relationship historically has always been closer in New South Wales than it was in Victoria and, dare I say, Queensland. Uh, but the relationship endured through the Fraser-Anthony years, and I saw them work in cooperation. I saw the determination of Malcolm Fraser as leader of the Liberal Party to oppose unnecessary three-cornered contests, particularly involving ministers. I remember on occasions when the Liberal Party in Victoria threatened to run a candidate against Peter Nixon uh, uh, in the seat of Gippsland, Fraser said, if you do that, I'll go down and campaign for Nixon. And of course, it had the desired effect. Uh, I, I think Nixon, frankly, would have survived even without Fraser's assistance. He was, a, he was a very tough and effective campaigner, but that was a measure of the strength that people had and felt uh, on the issue. Thanks for joining us for this water cooler conversation from the Menzies Research Centre, a not-for-profit think tank supporting freedom, enterprise and opportunity. If you'd like to be a part of our mission and support our great free content, please subscribe at menziesrc.org. You'll be able to enjoy many benefits exclusive to subscribers, including discounts on books, free copies of research reports, and invitations to subscriber-only events. Email us your feedback at info at menziesrc.org, and don't forget to give us five stars on your podcast provider. Thanks so much for listening, and now, back to the water cooler. Of course, the coalition has come under stresses and strains. 
I have to say the, the worst period, I think, in a way, in my political life was the Joe for PM campaign when I was opposition leader in the 1980s. That was very tough. I've reflected on the reasons for it and I, I feel no, no rancor. I just reflect historically on that it was a significant event. What is interesting about that campaign and that series of events over a period of six or nine months is that it represented the greatest threat to the coalition in my political life, yet it was ended by the very strength of that coalition. What in the end meant the Joe for PM campaign could not get off, really get off the ground, although it did have a destructive effect on our electoral prospects, was the determination of the New South Wales National Party to preserve its decades-long coalition with the Liberal Party. It may surprise some of you who perhaps not study this period to know that even though the federal coalition was broken and we operated for the last uh, few months of that term of parliament as separate parties in the parliament and there was no coalition front bench, even though it was a very difficult time and the coalition had been broken, it was the resolve of the New South Wales National Party not to allow the civil war to spread to New South Wales. And Ian Sinclair and I, with the support of our organisations, and I give particular credit to the late Doug Moppet, who was then the chairman of the New South Wales Nationals, we reaffirmed the coalition arrangement in the Senate for New South Wales. We ran a joint Senate ticket in New South Wales. And very importantly, the New South Wales National Party said that if any Joe campaign, any candidate stood against Liberals in New South Wales, they, the New South Wales Nationals, would campaign for the Liberal Party candidate because it effectively stopped that campaign in its tracks. And I remember vividly the night that I had a meeting in my home in Sydney with uh, Bob Sparks, who was the very formidable and very effective uh, president of the Queensland National Party and his state director and about what was going to happen. They said to me, the New South Wales Nationals have stopped us. And it's ironic, isn't it, that something that led to the breaking of the federal coalition was finally stopped by the strength of the coalition uh, here in New South Wales. That was a great strain. It was very difficult. And I never forgot it. Not in the sense that I bore grudges. I never forgot that having been so close to permanent rupture, it was something that was never going to be allowed to happen again. And I recall <clears throat> several days after our wonderful victory in 1996 that I calculated, and few people drew my attention to it, that theoretically the Liberal Party could have governed in its own right because we had 76 seats to the clear majority and amongst those on the other side were two independent Liberals, Alan Rocher and Paul Filing, who'd been elected uh, in Western Australia. And I said, under no circumstances will we ever dream 
of trying to govern in our own right. We went to the Australian people as a coalition. Tim Fisher and I went as partners, he leading the National Party and me leading the Liberal Party. And I knew also that that situation, that numerical supremacy we had was not going to last beyond that parliament. And of course it didn't. But more importantly, I knew that it would be a breach of faith with our supporters and it would betray those people in both parties who would work so very hard. So that, never, that idea never got off the ground. And of course, in government, we faced a lot of stresses and difficulties, but none couldn't be surmounted. The greatest challenge was that of gun control regulation. The gun control issue was very difficult for the National Party. It was very difficult for the National Party government in Queensland and I continue to give in that context enormous credit to Rob Borbich for the way in which he supported the overall national interest. But to my own colleagues at the time, the late Tim Fisher and John Anderson, they bore the full brunt of the sense of frustration and disillusionment that many decent rural people felt about the imposition of laws that they believed were, the, were made necessary by the behaviour of a madman uh, and, and were an unfair imposition on country people. It was very easy to talk gun control in the cities. I had people who came up to me in Pitt Street and, and say, I've never voted for you in my life and I never will, but you're absolutely right in what you're doing with gun control law. I mean, they probably all lived in Annandale or Balmain or somewhere <laughs> like that. But uh, be that as it may maintain, although I have to say that there was a polling booth in Balmain at the last election that was very, very, very close to recording a Liberal majority. So uh, things are maybe for years to come, I, I doubt it though. <laughs> but it was a very difficult issue and it put a lot of strain on the National Party members and rural Liberals. And of course it led in no small measure to the formation of One Nation. I think One Nation was partly, not, not, not wholly, but partly inspired by the anger about our gun control measures. And it caused awful difficulties for many of our colleagues. I remember talking to Warren Truss uh, on the eve of the 1998 election and he was describing his difficulties. He said, John, I've I've got a Labor candidate, I've got a One Nation candidate and she's polling about 15 to 20% and I've got a couple of independents. He said, on top of that, I've got a Liberal candidate. Because at that stage, we hadn't been able to fully negotiate a, 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 a non-contest, you know, non-three-party contest. But we got through that. There were some casualties and there were some difficulties, but we got through it because of the strength of the coalition and the determination of the leadership of the coalition under Tim and John uh, to keep things together and we gradually surmounted it. But it was an extremely difficult issue. The other thing that I have to say is that that period saw a coming together of the two parties on economic policy to a greater extent than had ever obtained under previous, certainly under the Fraser Anthony government. I have to say that I can't think of a major economic issue on which John Anderson and I fundamentally disagreed. 
we had the same view about the need to balance budgets, to spend within our means, to pursue economic reform. He was a strong supporter of our plans for taxation reform. He was an ardent supporter, as so many National Party people were, of the need for industrial relations reform because they represented farmers who saw their produce rotting on the wharfs because of the industrial anarchy on the Australian waterfront. And he was, uh, in, in that sense, a wonderful colleague. And I've said before that, say it again, uh, I haven't met a more decent, honourable man in public life than John. And he was a wonderful colleague to work with as Deputy Prime Minister. But the whole of the coalition, with the odd exception for periods of time uh, after 2004, um, with the odd exception, the whole of the coalition um, worked closely together. Cabinet meetings never divided on the, with a situation that you've, one side of the argument had all the Nats and the other side of the argument had all the Liberals. It just didn't operate that way. So it was a very fruitful partnership. The partnership that's delivered us government. 2016 was a bad election for the Liberal Party. It was a very good election for the National Party. There's a solidity about the National Party vote in its constituencies federally. I'm not quite so sure at a state level. I think there are challenges, particularly here in New South Wales, about the solidity of the National Party vote in state elections. But federal elections have been very solid. But having spoken so positively about it, I would be failing in my duty if I didn't say that there are huge challenges facing both of our parties. We have been very successful electorally and all of the public focus at the moment is on the travail of the Labor Party and you know, long may that continue, of course. Uh, don't get me wrong, but both of our parties face existential challenges. It's harder to maintain a political party in 2019 as any kind of mass movement. The Liberal Party that I joined in the late 1950s was infinitely more representative. When I joined the Earlwood branch of the Liberal Party, it was infinitely more representative of the suburb of Earlwood and surrounding environs in which I live than it is today. Modern generations do not join organisations. They don't join political parties, they don't join churches, they don't join service clubs. I mean, a lot of them do, but not in the numbers that used to be the case. And even with a famed affection for sport that Australians pride themselves on, they don't join sporting organisations quite as compulsively as used to be the case. And we must guard against either or both of our political parties becoming composed predominantly of people who are not sufficiently representative of the people in the community that we want to vote for us. And that is a real challenge for both of our parties. But we're not alone. It's a challenge for the 
Republican Party in the United States, the Democratic Party, we've got this phenomenon in the United States of, of, of this extraordinary battle for the Democratic Party nomination where the indications are they may well choose somebody who's on the far left of that party who um, one would hope is, is unelectable against a, a person who, I must say, surprised me when he won the Republican nomination. Uh, and it, it's a challenge. And you see in the United Kingdom, Jeremy Corbyn now leads a Labor Party that is so far out on the left wing that it would represent uh, a real challenge to the future of Great Britain uh, if he were to win the election. Now, politics at a party level now is a lot more challenging than it was. And there are challenges for parties on both the left and the right and our two parties are in that situation. And both of our parties face the curse of factionalism and, you know, sometimes I, whenever I mention that, I get plenty of, plenty of nods of agreement and sometimes, I'm not saying this audience, but sometimes I look around the audience and I see people who nod and shout the loudest here, here, they're involved in the factional activities up to their ears. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got a long memory. <laughs> but it is, it is a challenge. Legitimate differences on philosophical grounds are the stock in trade of a vigorous political party. Legitimate differences, of, but factionalism, which represents nothing more than a series of contests between preferment cooperatives, if I can put it that way, are a curse and something that has to be guarded against and it's a particular responsibility of our organisational and our parliamentary leaders. Now, my friends, as we gather and, and celebrate this quite extraordinary partnership, the most successful partnership by far in Australian politics, all political parties or gatherings of political parties are coalitions in one form or another. The differences between the far right and the far left of the Labor Party over the years are greater than any of the differences that have ever existed inside either of our parties. And when Bob Menzies gathered the anti-Labor forces together back in 1944 to launch the Liberal Party of Australia, history will record the wisdom of the then country party in staying out of the new party. It's always had a distinctive identity. And we'll always be successful if the two parties recognise the ground rules. Of course, there is a numerical disproportionality between the two parties. But that doesn't mean, as I occasionally had to tell some of my Liberal Party colleagues when I was Prime Minister, it doesn't mean that you apply the laws of arithmetic to every policy decision. There are some things that are so important to the special constituency that the National Party represents, that the National Party must have its way on those issues. And that was the view I always took. Fortunately, there are not a large number of those, but they're important issues. And if they're not continuously respected by Liberal Party leaders, and I know that our 
our leader, Scott Morrison, who did such a magnificent job in the last election, understands and values the importance of the coalition. And I was delighted at the um, tribute dinner that was offered to Tony Abbott 10 days ago that uh, Warren Truss, who was Tony's deputy, and the safest pair of political hands you couldn't find in that position, he spoke warmly of the association that he had. And it epitomised uh, that continuity of cooperation between our two parties. So my friends, thank you for supporting uh, the Page Research Centre. Thank you for supporting the Menzies Research Centre. And long may this enduring partnership continue to the benefit of all of the Australian people. Thank you. Thanks to the Page Research Centre for their assistance in staging that event and for providing that recording. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out other podcasts which you'll find on our website or via iTunes or on SoundCloud. They include a conversation between John Howard and his former deputy, John Anderson, which was given after that lecture you've just heard in front of a live audience. It only remains for me to thank you for listening. From all of us at the Mendes Research Centre, thank you so much for your support. (laughs) 